Hi, everyone. You're watching NBC10 Boston's new question and answer series about the Russia-Ukraine war. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with uh, Maya Cross of Northeastern University and Alek Kotsuba of Harvard University. Thank you guys for being here. Hi. Thank you. Now we have we are meeting right after the president of Ukraine just addressed Congress this morning asking for a no-fly zone as Russian airstrikes continue to devastate the country. And he did say that if that's too much to ask, that there was an alternative for the U.S. to transfer Polish fighter jets, which we talked about last week. And Biden has said since then that a no-fly zone is a trigger for World War III. I wanted to get your thoughts on whether or not that's something you agree with and get a little deeper into the sort of complications around transferring these fighter jets. So let's start off, um, Maya, with just whether or not you agree with Biden's statement that a no-fly zone is a, is a trigger for World War III. What do you think about that? I do agree with President Biden's take on this. I think that he is being very careful about avoiding escalation precisely for this reason, um, because if things grow into involving a direct confrontation between NATO and Russia, we're not just talking about the plight of the Ukrainian people, but possibly the plight of people around the world uh, because of the fact that these are nuclear powers. Uh, so his approach is basically to avoid anything that looks like escalation while fully and maximally supporting the Ukrainians in terms of um, weapons and intelligence and other types of resources, financial resources, humanitarian resources. Um, so I think this is the right approach. Um, obviously, if you have direct confrontation between NATO soldiers, which could be through fighter jets and Russian soldiers, uh, you immediately bring up the question of whether NATO is going to invoke Article 5. An attack on one is an attack on all. So then you would have 30 involved pretty quickly in this this kind of effort to put up a no-fly zone. Hello, what do you think? Um, well, you know, from the Ukrainian perspective, of course, uh, you know, civilians and um, innocent, innocent people are suffering from this, you know, and uh, so many Ukrainians have called kind of this, this kind of position a choir of fear, namely, namely meaning that the Western leaders are overwhelmingly afraid of of Vladimir Putin, while Ukrainians have to defend their lives. And so the air defenses being the weakest point in Ukrainian defense system, that's the reason for asking the, for the no-fly zone. I think that President Zelensky was very smart in the way that rhetorically this address was uh, constructed, because the way that he, that he did it, he asked, is it too much to ask for a no-fly zone? and showing images of bombardments and, and innocent people dying, the answer implicitly is no, it's not too much to ask because people are dying. If your people were dying, you would be asking for the same. And so I think that, you know, that was a very strong move to show that there is an equivalence between the suffering of the people. Doesn't matter where you live, in America, in Ukraine, in the Middle East or elsewhere, innocent civilians Oh, looks like he cut out there. Um, while we wait for him to sort of connect, Maya, would you just talk a little bit about um, what the uh, about the um, fighter jets and what sort of the concerns are about transferring those? 
Yeah, I think that it is um, a logistical problem because essentially these fighter jets would be taking off from an American base. And in that sense, it could be construed as escalation. Also, I think the calculations on the part of Pentagon officials and the defense establishment in the U.S. is that the fighter jets would not add measurably to Ukraine's defense. Um, what they really need are these, these anti-tank um, sort of weapons and things that would allow them to, to fight on the ground, anti-missile weapons as well. But to actually have fighter jets in the air would not substantially help. Uh, the Ukrainians. And so that is part of the calculation there. Um, of course, it's just as Ole was saying, it's it's an incredibly difficult balancing sort of strategy to, to really think about since people are suffering every day and dying and the, the nature of the, the attacks do, I think, rise to the level of war crimes. Um, but at the same time, it's really about safeguarding the world more generally and trying not to have this grow into a bigger um, violent confrontation that could then sort of lead to nuclear war. So you were, you've sort of given the um, consequences of certain actions. I wonder though, despite those consequences, if you think at this point it's worth it for the U S and, and NATO allies to try to let, welcome back. Um, we were just talking about, no, no problem. Did you want to finish your thought? Um, yes, yes. I, I just kind of, I just wanted to bring home the point that uh, Zelensky has worked really hard to establish this direct line among all the peoples who are suffering right now, and kind of pointing to Pearl Harbor, point to pointing to the 9/11, uh, you know, terror attacks. Basically, uh, uh, brings this the issue of human suffering home. People who were in the tra World Trade Center towers you know, they were innocent, the same as people in uh, Pearl Harbor who suffered from those attacks. And so those parallels were meant to kind of to to show this, um, you know, parallel uh, between the suffering of Ukrainians today and those tragedies that Americans know very well. And so I think that the rhetorical argument there was nothing is too much to ask for because human lives are at stake, something that you cannot return. You, you can rebuild buildings and roads, but you cannot return human lives. And so we should do everything possible within our power, and we should not, uh, you know, we should not be afraid. Uh, the fact that uh, Russia is blackmailing the rest of the world, the fact that they have taken hostage two nuclear power plants, already testifies to us that we are in this confrontation. Because if that Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, God forbid, explodes, you know, and it's the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, it's six times six times larger than the the Chernobyl. A nuclear power plant was in 1986 the entire world is going to be affected so if you know we are actually already in this so let's do more to to help ukrainians and then of course kind of then how he did it you know saying well if it's too much you know if the suffering or people is not enough for you then could you at least do something else and so and then he uh, you know, went on to ask for the uh, uh, anti-aircraft defense system, so S-300s, you know, that are that are Soviet-made, including by Ukrainians, in fact, um, as well as those Soviet-made uh, fighter jets. And so, kind of the latest, the latest reporting that I've seen from CNN is that those uh, the um, uh, anti-aircraft defense defense systems, including S-300, are potentially uh, being transferred right now, or at least they've begun the transfer while the the transfer of the fighter jets remains remains an issue 
So can you talk a little bit about why the U.S., um, why you think the U.S. should be transferring those fighter jets? Uh, so the kind of the, the problem that Ukraine has right now that is that basically in terms of the fighter jets capabilities, it does not have enough equipment to stop Russians from bombing civilian cities. So kind of Russians have been dropping aerial bombs. They have been, uh, you know, uh, using cruise missiles and ballistic missiles, including from the Black Sea region, you know, shot from air jets, from fighter jets, as well as from, um, uh, you know, warships. And uh, Ukrainians don't have the capacity enough to, to fend them off. So what they've been trying to do, they have been very successful at fighting back with the limited resources, with the, with the limited number of fighter jets that they do have, shooting down, you know, uh, there are different estimates, uh, you know, how many airplanes and fighter jets, but bolstering that or even maybe doubling their, that number would be a huge help to try and defend more civilians in those peaceful cities that are being terrorized right now. And so the president gave sort of two options here, implement the no-fly zone, and if that's too much, transfer the fighter jets. What do you think the U.S. should be doing or should they be doing both? Um, if as, uh, I, I think that, you know, those are basically the two options that are, you know, one of them is realistic, you know, so to speak, given the political environment in this country and in the world. Um, just as Maya has pointed out, you know, President Biden, as well as other Western leaders have been extremely cautious not to escalate the conflict and to get you know more countries involved so in that situation the ukrainian leader he understands that very well um you know and so he has asked for something that is realistic and so fighter jets and the uh, s-300 uh, defense systems they are just more realistic um of course the ideal case scenario would be if if a combination of allies, not necessarily NATO allies, uh, implemented and enforced a no-fly zone over Ukraine. But we have seen for weeks now that it's not going to happen. So Ukrainians are basically going to try to do them, uh, it themselves using the equipment that hopefully they will get from the West. Maya, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think the Ukrainians do very much need the anti-tank, anti-missile equipment, and, and that is something the West can provide quite easily. And the more that they can provide in terms of this equipment and intelligence, um, strategizing and everything, the better. Um, it's, it really is a dire situation on the ground there for Ukrainians. Absolutely. Um, the other sort of big question mark we've talked about before we went live is is China and whether or not China will be will help Russia. And obviously, China could provide a major buffer to the Russian economy. So I wanted to get your perspectives on what's happening there, what the implications are if China does decide to help and sort of what where we are right now with that. Uh, Maya, would you start with that? Sure. I mean, as, as we all know, 20 days before the invasion, she and Putin were in talks. And at the end of those talks, they declared that their friendship had no limits. So now those limits are very much being tested. Um, I think Xi Jinping thought that, you know, this invasion would be over relatively quickly. But now that it's dragging on and we see that Putin needs more reinforcements, he needs more help from the outside military um, and economic, China is really put into the spotlight here. 
so for China, it actually has close ties with both Ukraine and Russia. In 1992, China was among the first to establish close ties with the newly independent Ukraine. Uh, it, tra it trades with Ukraine in a number of areas, but it also gets arms from Russia. Um, so it doesn't necessarily want to choose between the two, and it's put in this difficult position. Now it's in a situation where it, it essentially might find itself in a proxy war with the U.S. So in effect, it's having to choose between the U.S. and Russia. Um, and all of the, the sort of strategic rationale would point towards not helping Russia because the Chinese economy is so globalized and um, it's now seen the power of these Western and global sanctions. China is far more reliant on its, uh, its foreign reserves. It has the largest foreign reserves in the world. Um, and they've already seen how Russia no longer has access to its foreign reserves. Uh, so it, it would be very difficult for China to face, you know, in a kind of proxy battle, the same kinds of sanctions that Russia has faced, but the U.S. has promised that would be the case. So if China does help Russia, China is looking at similar types of sanctions, um, not necessarily immediate, but a ratcheting up of these types of, of sanctions. And Russia, for its part, would then benefit from this China buffer. It would buy it some time and some resources. So it's a critical point right now for Russia and China. Um, I think it's important to note, though, that these are two authoritarian countries and the whole reason why they were kind of standing together in their partnership is that they wanted to have an alternate sort of option to Biden's alliance of democracies. They wanted to be the, this kind of leadership partnership partnership for autocracies around the world. Um, and so even if we see China kind of backing away from Russia or trying to take a neutral stance, we shouldn't mistake that as China fundamentally changing and moving away from its autocratic goals. Right. Ola, what do you yeah. think? Yeah, I, I I think and hope that uh, the, you know the Chinese leadership is going to remain very rational and logical in this. Uh, just as Maya pointed out, China is a lot more vulnerable to pressure from the international market. Uh, of, of course, it's also a lot harder to sanction it in the same way as Russia has been sanctioned. But we have seen already from President Trump's attempts, um, you know, in the in the past uh, administration that putting pressure and squeezing you know various chinese businesses can be very effective in terms of you know getting um you know to negotiation table or getting certain uh concessions uh from the chinese precisely because they're so dependent on the international engagement in their economy as we know china produces you know the bulk or, or at least a, a large amount of uh, goods for the rest of the world. And so if the rest of the world, including those democratic countries, stopped, maybe gradually, but still stopped importing those goods, Russian, uh, the Chinese economy would be sh in shambles. And so I think that the choice here indeed is not just the United States versus Russia, but the world versus Russia, who do you choose? And so um, my, my hope is that uh, Ch the Chinese are going to remain, um, you know, as neutral as possible in this. We do know that they have uh, su supposedly, according to unconfirmed reports at this point, signaled that they would be open to sending uh, some um, uh, you know, foodstuff supplies to the Russian army to help with those logistical problems. At the same time, they also have sent uh, humanitarian aid to Ukraine, which is uh, arriving these days from what I understand. 
And so definitely there is a balancing act that they're trying to, to do. But I do believe that they're going to face uh, strong pressure uh, from the Western allies, not just from President Biden, but also from the Europeans, uh, who in general have been a lot more engaged with the Chinese in terms of their investments, in terms of the kind of the penetration of the Chinese uh, uh, on the European market in all, in all uh, different, different kind of sectors of the economy. So you just mentioned that China's already doing some things to help Russia and Ukraine, but what, what would China have to do? How far would China have to go to support Russians in Russia's invasion in order for, you know, the world to respond with uh, sanctions and, and other forms of punishment? Ole? That's that's a very good question. I think that the uh, we have to be also very realistic about the rest of the world. The fact that you know there there is such a strong interdependency is going to make a lot of uh, uh, you know global leaders in, a, in in economic terms very hesitant about imposing strong uh, sanctions or or strong limitations on the Chinese economy, uh, which may be a good thing, you know, because that allows you for the um, escalation. Of, potential, uh, you know, in terms of uh, uh, applying those uh, limiting uh, measures. Um, I think that the, probably the critical point is going to be the supply of weapons to Russia. According to some uh, analysts, Russia is uh, going to run out of its uh, ammunition supplies in about 10 days, mm -hmm. more or less. Um, they already have problems with other supplies, including the, you know, uh, fuel, including rations for the soldiers on the ground in Ukraine. And so um, I think as long as it probably remains with the rations from the Chinese, I don't think that it will face a very strong uh, opposition. But as soon as it uh, goes into ammunition supplies and other uh, and other such kind of similar um, deliveries, I think that's when there will be a stronger reaction. Great. Maya? Yeah, I would add to that, that for sure weapons would be a red line that can't be crossed. But I do think it might be even sooner than that. I think any move that China makes that is different from what it's been doing historically, that seems to be undermining the sanctions that the West and the world have put in place, would trigger some sort of sanction. So it would be in proportion to whatever China does. But anything that's designed to undermine the efficacy of those sanctions, I think would trigger a response. Okay, anything else to add on on sort of the relations with China before I move on? Well, just to kind of, just to point out that China has been one of the biggest uh, trade partners for Ukraine, especially in recent years. The kind of, there are various trade agreements that are being executed. Uh, the Chinese are actively involved or, or have been actively involved in rebuilding Ukraine's infrastructure, including the the railway, the roads, the bridges uh, in Ukraine to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. And, um, you know, we also should remember the, the deal uh, that fell through uh, of buying Ukrainian technologies in producing um, aircraft engines. Uh, so the kind of the famous, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a development, basically, a company that, that develops those uh, engines. It's called, it's called Motor Siege. And so that fell through because of the American pressure on Ukrainians not to sell those technologies. But there are many other involvements. And supposedly, you know, there were kind of other joint ventures that they wanted to go into. So all of that would also be at stake, of course. Great. 
Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you guys about was um, some response that's been coming out of Russia, which we talked, which we talked a little bit about. There have been some sanctions of their own. There was a Russian lawmaker recently that just called for uh, the return of Alaska and and also a um, historic settlement in California. Is this? Is this possible for Russia to do at this point while they're launching a full-scale invasion on Ukraine to, to do these kinds of things? Uh, how realistic is that, Maya? I think it's part of it is just kind of a Russian strategy to to stow confusion and, and to sort of pretend as though it can, you know, strut on the world stage. These requests are obviously ridiculous, and they remind me a bit of sort of what the head of Roscosmos was saying, threatening the International Space Station early on. He said Russians could crash it into the atmosphere and you know, destroy all of the of that equipment, um, which is one of the most expensive uh, civil cooperative arrangements in history in the world. Uh, so, so you see a lot of these kind of wild statements coming out, which you know, from the perspective of us in the West, just seem like how can those even be thought of as strategic? But it does seem to be part of a just kind of a general stance on 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 the part of Russian leaders and those with influence to kind of throw out these statements that really can't amount to anything. Yeah, yeah, I have to agree with that. And I think that it shows that um, contrary to what President Putin has been, uh, you know, s um, pronouncing on television, uh, the war is not going according to plan. Um, and so this is, I, I think that's a sign of the desperation among the Russian elites. They're trying to deflect from the uh, really the failure in Ukraine to achieve the goals. On the one hand, on the other hand, it also points to these deep feelings of uh, inferiority that uh, the Russians and the Soviets, for that matter, have been harboring towards the West for decades. Um, you know, uh, Russia has been known for this disproportionate response to threats, to threats, or, or to acts by other by other actors. Meaning, if someone does something small, the response is not going to be logical; it's going to be disproportionate, so as to dissuade the the, op the opponent from doing something more or even even that act and so the fact that it's so uh, responding in such a way is basically uh, testifies to the feelings of inadequacy and the fears that you know uh in fact they're they have nothing to match the uh, the west they have nothing to offer that is attractive to the rest of the world right um and the last uh, anything more to add on that subject before i move on I mean, I would just say that while these kinds of statements about Alaska and California are innocuous, um, you know, this kind of, of betrayal of the, the true desperation they are feeling that Ole just described, it also has a very sinister side to it, which means that if Putin and the Russian military are desperate in these ways, they may escalate in terms of the humanitarian crisis on the ground. They may use more missiles that are destructive and targeted at civilians out of desperation. They may move to tactical nuclear weapons out of desperation, feeling backed into a corner. So um, it is still relatively concerning despite the outlandishness of, of these um, yeah, comments. Yeah, and that's why the kind of the, uh, this calls for no fly zone or for at least for effective equipment to prevent Russians from terrorizing the civilians are so important today. You know, the West is is the adult in this entire situation, being very restrained, trying to accommodate the fears and and the supposedly legitimate concerns of the Russian leadership. 
while Russia is acting out like like a teenager, you know, kind of throwing tantrums and and stomping their feet and so on, simply because it has nuclear weapons. And so once again, it poses the question whether Russia is a responsible partner in the kind of in the kind of world order that we live in. Uh, as we know, after World War II, Russia was one of the stakeholders, or the Soviet Union was one of the stakeholders in constructing this world order, and today is destroying it using its nuclear weapons. So, you know, the, what is the what kind of the the question here? I think that is going to be probably raised relatively soon is what to do about Russia and its nuclear weapons in the future. If it cannot be responsible, you know, and and act responsibly. Maybe Russia doesn't deserve to have nuclear weapons in the first place. Right. Uh, well, we are out of time. It has been great to have you guys on today. I really appreciate your time. And I look forward to talking to you all again uh, about the newest updates next Wednesday at 1030. Thank you so much.